0: EFTM. Tech, cars, lifestyle.
1: This is the EFTM podcast with Trevor Long.
2: EFTM.
1: Well, g'day, g'day. Lovely to have you company on the EFTM podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Always great to have you company. If you're listening as a longtime listener of the EFTM podcast, g'day. Welcome back. And if you're listening for the first or second time because you're hearing this in the two blokes talking tech feed, where have you been all this time? But great to have your company as part of a, a week-long festival of technology uh, on Two Blokes Talking Tech. Um, and for those that don't know what I'm talking about, we've, there's two separate podcasts that you can subscribe to. One of them is the EFTM podcast. You'll just get this. The other is Two Blokes Talking Tech. And in that, on a, on a, th- Thursday, you'll get Two Blokes Talking Tech. On a Saturday, you'll get a movie podcast. On a Monday, you'll get the private feed, which just mean fennec gibbering. On Tuesday, you'll get tech guide Stevens podcast, and on Wednesday you'll get the EFTM podcast. So you can kind of have one subscription and just get it all, or you can pick and choose as you like. Um, totally up to you how you get it. I understand that it might be overwhelming for those people that are in both already, um, but give us two or three weeks to absolutely confirm that that's, that's working and not cannibalizing anything or doing anything weird. Um, but I, I look at it and I go, I think it's a nice way of giving you a channel of of tech content uh, across the week because we've got a, a strong, loyal audience. So it's great to be uh, entertaining you on a daily basis, essentially. Um, on this show, we uh, we do a bunch of uh, interviews as well as uh, chatting to you if you've got a tech question. It's really talkback radio on a podcast. And um, we've been doing this for 10 years or so. I know many other people doing talkback podcasts, but here we are uh, doing it, uh, churning it out every week. So if you've got a question and you want to be on the show, um, whether you've got a tech question, Or you are debating a purchase in your life, or you've got an opinion on something technology or cars related, just get in touch. Go to the website eftm.com and just click on Ask Trev. I'll get your email. And on a Tuesday when I record, I will get in touch with you and we'll get you on the show, hopefully, uh, to help you out with your tech questions. We've got a bunch of tech questions uh, lined up to chat to today from tracking your cars to smart home advice to even the benefits or not of a Chromebook. Plus, we are going to talk Lego, my friends. Oh yes, we will talk Lego, um, because of Twitter. All right. Now you know I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter, but and I'm not on it regularly. I just log on to check my messages nowadays, uh, rather than reading through all the gibber that goes on and the hatred. <laughs> so keep it rather simple. But um, John o. Vickers, who's a, re- a reasonably regular listener, I appreciate you getting in touch. John O suggested I speak to Brent Waller. Now, Brent is an Aussie game developer from Five Live Studio in Brisbane, and he created two iconic Lego sets, one of which I own, and I'm blown away that he's Aussie, and I didn't know that, so we will get Brent on the line, and we will talk to him about that. Plus, if you want to search up and just Google Seasons in Time Calendar, okay, Seasons in Time Calendar Lego, that's what I want you to Google, um... And have a look at, this, at the second link along, it's a thing called Brick Link. Um, click on that, and it's a beautiful um, piece of Lego that Brett has created that's going up for crowdfunding. So essentially, it's like a voting situation. If enough people order it, it will get produced by this kind of subsidiary of Lego. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing. I really love it, and it's just one of his latest creations. But we'll talk about his other much more iconic creations when we catch up with Brent a little bit later in the show. Plus, as I record, the day is Tuesday, and um, Scott Morrison has announced – I haven't actually seen it, a formal announcement, just lots of media reporting on it – but um, an electric vehicle investment, so an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars in um, charging infrastructure for cars – but, you know, people like to be narky. They don't like to be happy with these things. So there's a lot of commentary going around. So I'm going to talk to Gail Broadbent, who researches social attitudes towards electric cars at the University of New South Wales Faculty of Science. She was a former transport policy advisor of the New South Wales government. So Ms Broadbent, I'm tipping, knows a lot more about electric cars than you, me, or pretty much anyone else going around. So we will talk to her about what this means. Is this enough? Will this get us to the point of really, truly going electric? Who knows? So that's going to be an interesting one to understand and learn about. So we'll get onto that shortly and, of course, your calls. So, yeah, get in touch. Go to the website, EFTM.com. Would love to have your company uh, right here on the EFTM podcast. Taking your calls. If you've got a tech question, jump on the line. Wayne's there. G'day, Wayne. Uh, Good day, Trevor. I was wondering if I could ask a couple of questions about trackers, please. Yeah, Hemi. What sort of tracker you looking for?
0: Well, something I can use in the car, just to uh, something I might be able to um, to get, you know, to stop theft. Yep. Or to recover a theft, you know, like a stolen car or a stolen boat or something yep. like that.
1: H- how? I mean, how? What are we talking about? Really expensive stuff? I mean, th- there's a problem here. Is it's super? It's either really expensive. Or it's not a hundred percent accurate. Would, would, be, oh, what I I, would be what I'd say to you. So, think of it like having a mobile phone. You, you've got a you've got a mobile phone that needs to be charged, and it needs to have a SIM card in it, and that SIM card needs to be paid for on a monthly basis. Now it's not okay. using a lot of data, but you know you might need to buy a two hundred dollar a year SIM card to you know get the data through it. Um, so oh. there's a little trackers you can get it. Even JB Hi-Fi sell them uh, J-Car Electronics. They'll, you know, even a pet tracker uh, would do the job. Um, a 4G tracker is what you're looking for. And it wouldn't be too hard to find one that gets wired into the car. You obviously don't want to plug it in just to the normal cigarette lighter. I'd want an auto electrician to try and wire it in so that it's concealed because obviously there's no point having it sitting in the cup holder. If someone stole the car, they're just going to throw it out the window.
0: That's definitely um, right. Yeah. But, you know,
1: a couple of hundred bucks each plus the annual cost of them or monthly cost, um, mm. you know, it's it's not a cheap exercise at all. No, um, no, fair enough. Battery life's the biggest killer there. You really need to make sure that you've got a way of having it either reasonably well-powered constantly or charged, yep. you know, every week or so so that it's it's working mm. through. The other one mm. that might be worth mucking around with, and, and that's the Apple AirTag. Now, I don't oh. know if you've seen these things, but... They're about fifty bucks each, right? I think it's one hundred fifty yeah. bucks for a pack of four, and yeah. they're they made to track your keys. But mm. if you go, you got an iPhone, yeah. So if you go to an Apple store and buy one of these, um, you set it up and you call it, you know, the van, and just you put this little tracker in the van. And you might just put it somewhere, um, you know, in a in a drawer or something like that. But hopefully, you put it somewhere near the edge of the vehicle. But basically, I put one of these in a box that I sent. From Sydney to Brisbane and I was able to track that pretty well um, whenever I wanted to see where it is I was able to open up my app on my phone and see where it was because every time that box went past an iPhone that iPhone went oh there's an Apple AirTag um, and anonymously didn't tell the owner of the iPhone just sent my, sent the location of the tag up onto the cloud and whenever I log in it showed me and so no. look it's, it's no guarantee that you're going to find your item that you're going to know where it is but you might right. see where it last was um, yeah. You may well get information about where it is in real time but yeah. as a really simple cheap effective way i reckon it's worth worth mucking around with mate those, yeah, bat- the, bat- yeah, the yeah, battery yeah. on those last uh, last a year or more and there's no sim card required so there's no ongoing cost but you yeah, are that le- sounds like that. you are r- remember this you're not guaranteed to be able to locate if if someone takes your boat Puts it in the in the river and just pushes it out. If if no person with a mobile phone comes within cooey of that boat for for six months, you'll never know where it is. Ah, right. Yeah, Someone, yeah. but but if someone's stolen your car, yeah. How long do you reckon before you find out it's stolen?
0: Oh, the, like within, I don't know, probably within, four or five hours, something yeah, like that.
1: Within so hours, right? And yeah. they're they're probably still in the car. They're driving somewhere, yeah. or they've dropped yeah. it at a shop because it's going to be chopped up or whatever. Trust me, yeah. someone there's got a mobile phone, and your yeah. your phone is going to find out where it is. I actually think, yeah. for, for simplicity's sake, that's an interesting approach. Like, if I yeah, was a is. tradie, if I was a tradie, I'd put an air tag on every toolbox in my in my ute.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, those what things get idea. ripped
1: off all the time. So, mate, yeah, go, go to they, go to the Apple Store sorry. and buy some and, and test them out yeah. on some stuff.
0: So they come in a pack of
1: four. today. You sir. can buy one or a pack of four. Oh, okay. Buy four. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a better idea. Whack it in the car and track the misses on the way down to the shops. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. it's it's not real time. You don't like you don't see it moving on the map. It's like every mm. half an hour you open it up and go, where is it now? And it shows you where it is if it knows where it is. Oh. Yeah?
0: Okay. It's yeah, cool. that sounds it's really really cool. Mm-hmm. That's, thanks for that, Trevor. No a good, worries. That's a good approach. All right. Good
1: luck with that one, my friend. Good on you. Thanks, Trevor. All right, buddy, Bye. good on you. And uh, if you got a question like Wayne, just go to the website eftm dot I, I, it's a tough one to recommend because I'd hate for Wayne to ring me in a year, say someone stole my boat and we still haven't found it. Yeah, if I had a boat that was worth a lot of money, and I don't know, I'd, like insurance, I don't know. There's there's a balance between how much you want to spend on knowing where it is versus the convenience of the simplicity of something like an air tag. I don't know. If you, it, by the way, if you bought an air tag and you've used it for any of that kind of thing, bloody hell, let me know, please. I've only done the basics, which is use it for my keys and stuff and those trackings that I've told you about, like the packages. Love to know more. Uh, get in touch any time. You know how to do it. This
2: is the AFTM podcast. The FTM. Well, when the
1: internet asks, the internet get answers, and that's the way I believe it should be. A uh, long listener, John O'Vickers, tweeted me and Stephen Fennick the other day and said, quite simply, you guys need to chat with Brent on the internet, that being his Twitter handle, about how he created the Seinfeld apartment in Lego. Now, I've got to tell you, that's the first I heard that it was an Aussie. That created the Seinfeld apartment, and so I just went, "Well, hello, that is happening now." I don't log on to Twitter enough anymore, so it was only—it uh, was a few days after the, the tweet before I noticed, and um, I thought we're going to get him on the show. And Brent is on the line right now. Good Brent. How are you, mate?
3: Not too bad, yourself,
1: mate. Really good. John is a—if um, last, if I recall correctly, he's—he uh, works in the mines in Singleton, in New South Wales, and it just struck me that we've got a. You know, here's a bloke that works in the mines. Obviously, loves you know his his gadgets because he's listening to me podcasts in in the in the truck while he's while he's working. But he must also love his Lego because he's come across your work and, and knows about you, which is kind of the epitome of the of the modern Lego man, really, isn't it? You you can't pick who loves Lego, can you?
3: No, not really. And it's it's changed a lot in the probably 15 years since I've been in it into it as an adult. Back then, it was a bit uh, still a bit of a kid's toy.
1: Yeah. Look, I've got obviously the, the standard uh, parents' kids' bag of Lego, big bag of Lego with just millions of pieces in it, which we love just mucking around with. But then, you know, Dad's garage has in it a shelf with all of my Lego kits. So I've, I don't crowd on my own like you, and we'll get to that. but I've got a lot of Lego. Um, yeah, well, my wife doesn't need to know how much money was spent there, but let's just say it's, it's an enjoying enjoy, a joyful hobby for me. And here's the thing: the, um, that shelf sits in the garage in, in barely into the man cave but there's one piece of Lego, which my wife voluntarily took off my shelf, much to my disgust. Um, But then I realised she put it in the lounge room, Brent. Do you want to guess which piece of Lego that is?
3: I'd have to say it's either that flowers or the bonsai maybe.
1: Mate, Seinfeld.
3: Oh, really? (laughs) Yep. Here, I'm thinking more of a display piece kind of thing.
1: Well, this is exactly why it took me by surprise. My son has the little uh, bonsai tree. He made that. It's on his desk. but. My wife and I, massive Seinfeld fans, we still watch it to this day. Just in the background, it's one of those great shows to have on. And um, I look, I bought that kit the minute it was available as a as a Lego VIP on the you know on the website. But mate, t- you created it. You have to explain that process to me. Obviously, this is not your first Lego ideas, but just just start with me on the Lego uh, on the Seinfeld. Where did the idea? You know, how did it hit you that we needed this set?
3: It pretty much came like in a pure George Costanza Costanza (laughs) moment it was like Seinfeld uh, sorry Friends had just released their Lego set yep and I'm like how the hell does Friends have a set before Seinfeld (laughs) so I took it as a bit of a slight then and something I needed to rectify because I thought it was a bit of a travesty that Seinfeld was not represented before Friends yep so I thought I'd take this an opportunity to um i sort of I'm a video game artist by profession um, here in Brisbane, and there's a online sort of Lego building. It's not really a program because it's all web-based um, platform called Mechabricks, and in that you can build things within that. But it's got a really good rendering um, engine which makes for very realistic, uh, almost lifelike images of Lego.
1: Oh, so you don't need to physically build it with real bricks. You can do no, this no. all online.
3: So I've done I've done both before, but in this case I wanted to really test out this platform yeah. and see how, how see if I could fool people into thinking it was real Lego. Yeah. Um and I thought, well, Seinfeld is a perfect opportunity because when you do things digitally, you can you know, there's certain parts that are in production by Lego right now or have been in the past. Uh-huh. And if I am limited to only those parts, it kind of restricts what you can make. Whereas if you can use it digitally, you can just click a button and change the colour and use any part you like in any color that doesn't exist. As long as it's an existing Lego part, you don't have to worry about it. So I thought use that as a sort of platform to try out this Bricks thing, which I ended up exporting to the 3d program blender to render it from there and kind of went from there thinking how many people, I didn't think there's that many people like me who still like Seinfeld mm. around in this yeah, day I and were age. Wrong,
1: my friend, you were wrong. <laughs>
3: no. So I did one at the same time for X-Files uh. thinking that would go gangbusters. Cause I, I remember that being huge at the time and I was huge into it. I thought that one would do amazing and go really quick and Seinfeld would kind of dwindle off to nothing. and It was kind of the opposite.
1: So you designed something. Uh, take me through how Lego ideas works. Cause obviously Lego's is a yep. huge thing. You know, there's obviously the sets that they build on their own. There's all these different things, but this is Lego ideas is people like you, everyday people who yep. just have a passion for something. And frankly, you've got to be a good designer cause I've tried building stuff and it doesn't make any sense. Um, you you create something and then you submit it and this this your first was the ghostbusters car was it
3: yeah yeah so you you come up with basically a prototype for an idea for a lego set so it can be something like seinfeld or ghostbusters or it can be something completely original of your own design um obviously the seinfeld and ghostbusters are original designs but it's based on an existing license yep so you basically put it up on their website. They have, they have a bit of a curation process just to filter out the, the chat. Because it's
1: not just it's not just uh, body McBodie face kind of voting. Is it, it doesn't you could have a million, no, no. million votes and it doesn't mean it's going to get made because Lego need to say yes this meets yeah, our so approval.
3: It has to get to ten thousand votes and that's just public votes. And then from there, Lego will take it under review. Which sometimes it, it takes like eight months or something for this review to go through. Mm they'll make they'll see if there's a business case for it they'll see if they can acquire the license for it if there is one see if there's, you know see if there's an audience for it and um if they decide to uh if it passes all those steps and they think there's a market for it and they actually have the production capacity for it at this point in time then they'll put it into production and a team at lego will go off using your set as a prototype will then Build from that and make a final design that's done in-house by their design team,
1: and they do all the instructions and all that kind of jazz. You just, you really just need to create a prototype, and from there, your work is done.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, in the case of Seinfeld, for example, I had several Skype, uh, Zoom calls over the course of mm-hmm. the six to twelve month development period where I could give feedback, and we had some brainstorming sessions where we could try and squeeze in as many uh, Easter eggs and jokes as possible. <laughs> so there is a there is a collaboration process there, but you know, they doing a lot of hard work over there.
1: And what's, uh, I mean, I, I guess this is reasonably public information, but what's yeah. the benefit for you? Is there, do you get a trailing commission on sales or is it just, well done, you got it and here's some sets?
3: So you get what every uh, fan designer is what they technically call us. So you've got your Lego designers and we're the fan designers. We get 1% of royalties. So for every sale, we get 1%. Still, I'm not
1: tell allowed you that to discuss this. <laughs> No, no. Well, I don't. I
3: discuss specific specifics, but it's well, just one percent.
1: I think it's great to know that you you do get. if it goes crazy, gangbusters for them, it's a nice reward for you, rather than just the 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 original piece of work that you did. So, has this created? I mean, the Ghostbusters car uh, is yours the smaller one or the larger one? Because I've got the huge Ghostbusters car, but there's a smaller so, one. Is that yours?
3: Yeah, the small one's mine. That was uh, back in 2014. Back then, the Lego Ideas was called Lego Cuso, and they're kind of still finding their feet. So like the example I gave there where during Seinfeld, we had a very collaborative process during development. Mm-hmm. During um, Ghostbusters, when they're still finding their feet, I didn't find out till most other people did just because of the time zone difference. <laughs> and then I had a call with them the next day and I saw the final box art and it was off to the printers and ready to go. So oh, I didn't wow. really have <laughs> much feedback for input then just because the turnaround was so quick. Yeah, And I was on the shelves within, I think, two, or th- two months, I think.
1: Did you think that they you'd obviously been through the process with Ghostbusters? Did you think they would get the Seinfeld license because that's a that's a big it's a, it's a big business, you know. Seinfeld was you know twenty odd years ago, thirty years ago, but it um you know it's a it's a machine, isn't it? Right. So that would have been not a guarantee, really.
3: Yeah, and I'd, I'd heard rumours that you know Jerry didn't like uh, his own likeness being used for things. Ah. So they had, I think, Funko. It was one of the Funko pop brands. They didn't have a Jerry at that time, and people uh, yes. were hypothesising that maybe he wouldn't approve it. So it was all kind of up in the air. And I think one of the big things that helped was the fact that Netflix paid you know half a billion dollars for it to be for the worldwide streaming rights.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they
3: kind of saw there was going to be a renewed worldwide interest in it.
1: Smart move. So you know, design designing Lego is one thing, but you obviously have design at your heart. You you mentioned you work in a in a game studio. So what what's the day job for a man uh, who uh, builds Lego on the side?
3: Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders at Five Live Studios up here in Brisbane. Um, we worked on Windbound, which came out last year for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, PC. And the first game we did back in 2015, I want to say, um, all five of us, that's where the name comes from, Five Life Studios, and there's five founders, mm-hmm. um, were working at Sega here in Brisbane oh, wow. when they announced they were closing the studio. And um, one of the programmers here was an ex-Bullfrog, I don't know if you know the development team Uh, from the UK back in the day. Yep. He was one of their lead programmers, and he was the lead on a game called Syndicate Wars back in the 90s. So we thought, ah, everyone was packing up and leaving the country because Sieg was closing, and at that point THQ had left Brisbane and a bunch of other studios were closing down. We could either follow that suit and try and go for greener pastures overseas, or we could try and do a Kickstarter. So we ended up doing a Kickstarter for a spiritual successor to Syndicate from the '90s. So it's like a cyberpunk strategy game that we that we called Satellite Rain. Okay, yep. And as I think, still as of today, we're the highest um, Australian crowd-funded game. Wow. Um, and that basically started a company, and we've we've launched. We started working on that in 2013, launched in 2015, and did some support if, for that.
1: If Windbound was last year, what how talk me through the game building process because people I think lose track of the fact that this is we talk about the game industry being like the movie industry in terms of the money in it and the scale and all that kind of stuff but it's it's also the same in terms of the production. It's not just a uh, you know 2-hour job to make a 2-hour movie. Building a game is a very long process. You'd obviously be working on stuff now that you know will see the light of day in a in a decent period of time do you do you are you only working on large scale things or do you do you dabble in mobile where, where do you see the the games industry
3: well maybe mostly because we're um experienced in this genre we've come from console games and pc games so that's kind of mm. our niche that we've stuck to but like satellite rain was a fairly small project like there's the five founders and i think at our peak we we're about seven people all right um um windbound was i think 12 so we're not huge we're not like blizzard or any of these huge companies we're still relatively small mm. um it means we can we can change a lot quicker but it also means yep. we're a bit slower <laughs> because we don't have the quantity so we just have to work a bit smarter than some of the bigger companies because we have less people on the seats
1: so how does Lego come into your life is it obviously just one of those you're, you're like most of us where well, you just loved it as a kid and you picked it up when you had kids or did you always continue the passion where does Lego fit into your life
3: so I, I was obsessed with it as a kid I used to remember writing on the instruction manuals in the 80s I wrote Lego Lord was my nickname I gave myself <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of grew out of it in high school as I kind of discovered computers and girls, even though they had no interest in me.
1: <laughs> did I? I've got you there. <laughs>
3: and then it wasn't until um, the uh, Lego Star Wars games oh. in the mid-90s, they kind of re-sparked that imagination and that nostalgia for Lego. And I kind of, at the time, I was looking into the Modulus, which is a series of architecturally sort of designed buildings, and that they've just brought out Indiana Jones Lego, and yeah. then it, it's kind of a down a rabbit hole from there.
1: <laughs> it's crazy, though, isn't it? The last... Five years, certainly, but even the last couple of years, it is just utterly booming, is it not, Lego? Do you, do you see that? Do you feel that in, in everything you're doing online and the, you must spend a bit of time on the YouTube and stuff like that?
3: Yeah, and I think, I don't know if that's something they've, they've actually targeted as a business model, but it's something you can see, especially now they've got these at the adult range of Lego, which is not... You know, XXX adult only. It's no. more like a, they're just, just a trying complexity to make it clear that
1: this is this is you know there's stuff for your for your littlest kids, there's stuff for your kids, but then there's stuff you know, and I think the the friends, the uh, you know, the big Ghostbusters car, the just, I mean, I mean, I've got more cars. I've got a Porsche. I still haven't built. You know, there's just so much stuff that as a passionate adult with. Oh, there's I don't know if you're much on how what social media you're on, but I, there's this fun stuff on uh, TikTok where they. They say something like, uh, you know, no one told me when I had access to adult money, I'd do this. And it's like just people showing the stupid things they do. And, you know, it's people with huge man caves. Man caves full of Lego. It's, you know, <laughs> that's what happens when you get a when you get a job and, you know, a bit of disposable income. You can. You can go, you know what, I'm going to buy those four Lego art kits. I'm going to build John, Paul, George and Ringo. And I'm going to put them on the wall because it looks nice, you know. Yeah.
3: And that's what it was for me. Like I'm an artist by profession. So I'd sit on a computer mm. I, and I'd specialise in environment arts. I'd be making the levels for games Right. and I'd be staring at a computer all day and doing something creative, but I really wanted to get away from the screen when I got home, but still yep. do something creative. So just pure, purely by accident, Lego was a way for me to get that cathartic relationship with something physical and have a result at the end of it that I could be proud of. Mm. And, I, and it started just buying kits off the shelf and then it moved into making my own things and designing my own things.
1: Uh, you got kids yourself?
3: Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much where the Ghostbusters set came from because oh, yeah. at the time, my daughter was – I was starting to get really get into Lego, but my daughter was at an age where I couldn't just leave my Lego lying around the house anymore. She'd get into it and <laughs> just pop it in her mouth and choke or something. Yeah. So I wanted to make something small that could, uh, I could just tidy Ray right really quickly without her getting into it at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's where the, the design for that original Ghostbusters Ecto-1 car came from because I could do something small. That was quite. I could literally pick it up with one hand and just get it out of the road if I needed to. If she came yeah. wandering into the room,
1: yeah, perfect. And and she's obviously older now, so she yeah. must she must love the fact that you know it must be an amazingly rewarding feeling for a delivery. I get deliveries every day, but nothing would satisfy me more than opening a box and seeing actual Lego packaging for a set that I created. I, I can't even imagine what that's like. That must. That, it, don't tell you your four co founders, but that must be better than seeing a, a computer game appear on the PlayStation.
3: Yeah, well, it's more of a direct uh, relationship. It's something I've done, and if I hadn't done it, it wouldn't have existed, whereas it's more of a collaborative atmosphere with work. But, you know, they have I've been with them since I've had the two Lego sets now, and they've been there when those boxes have shown up. because yeah. Lego sends you 10 copies when the set's approved and made, so those boxes show up, and we all sort of sit around and open them up and have a look. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned the Friends Lego and how outrageous it was that it, there was a Friends. I think there was a Central Perk existed yeah. before the before the, um, the Seinfeld set. The problem is there's also now, and I haven't built it yet, but I do own it. The um, the Friends apartments. So surely, the diner. Surely, there's there's other Seinfeld off sets. And do you get to say, hey, Lego, give me first crack at this because you know you created the Lego genre for the the Seinfeld genre for them. <laughs>
3: That's something they actually changed the rules for around the time I did Ghostbusters because I did Ghostbusters that got through. So then I submitted the Stay puff Marshmallow Man and someone yeah. else submitted the Firehouse. And then they quickly changed the rules not long after that to say if a, an IP or a license has been introduced through the LEGO Ideas platform, it's now off-limits ah. for people to submit those things. And like that the Friends Apartment you're using as an example, um, the original designer of the Central Perk, doesn't get anything out of that. Yeah. I mean, I hope they, maybe they sent him one, but he's he's kind of just got the the clout to say I started this thing. Right. And the same with Ghostbusters, like that big one you've got now, and they've done Lego Ghostbuster video games and a bunch of other spin off sets mm-hmm. that I saw nothing out of. But at least I can say I got that started. Totally.
1: And, if, and this is I'm not asking from a business or a, or a financial perspective. I'm just asking from a fascination perspective. You know, uh, I guess you know as a Seinfeld nut. I look at it now and go, well, if I'm going to have a friend's buddy, Central Perk and apartments on my shelf, I'm definitely going to want more than just the apartment for Seinfeld. Yeah, Um, and I've
3: I've built the restaurant at home, so I've got uh, that for my own collection, just a custom one. And I've sort of stuck my hand up and told them, you know, I know you, I wouldn't be involved monetarily or anything, but if you guys are going to do any more no, further ones, I'd love to be involved just that's, creatively.
1: That's the great thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful for them to call and say, I know you can't be involved uh, from a contractual point of view, but would you love to you know, just consult with us on this and you know, we'll give you a credit in the book? Because that's, I, I, again, forget the money. I, the idea of having your photo and your name and you know, your inspiration printed in the book um, these things are just, it's phenomenal to think that that could be the case. So, you know, that, that's, you told me as a kid,
3: you told me as a five year old kid, that was going to happen. Exactly. I would have just <laughs> lost,
1: lost think myself. Think of all those, you know, books that you've looked at over the years and, uh, and there you are inside one. I'll tell you the other thing, the last thing I want to say to you is I, I love the fact that you're, uh, you, you know, probably forced to really embrace social media with these things. Cause you probably need to use social media to, to market them. Don't you? Um, yeah. but I was looking at, I think it was your Instagram and, um, I thought it was brilliant that you did a um, like a build your own. So you know, if there's characters from the Seinfeld, for example, that you want to build, well, find the pieces and here it is. And to be honest, I've got to build the Soup Nazi now that I've seen that on your Instagram. <laughs> um, I, I'm I don't know what I need to do to find all those pieces, but I will find all those pieces. And uh, that is just the best looking character. I I honestly think that would have looked better on the set than the Newman does, just because it's it's even more iconic in just when you when you glance at it. You know who it is. Uh, I love the idea that you can use social media in that way. Is that rewarding for you to see comments and feedback from people in that way?
3: Yeah, that's part of the the reward of us, seeing people buy the set. and I've seen people doing stop motion with the Lego set, with the Seinfeld set, and all sorts of things. But actually, I forgot to even mention it, as you mentioned, where to find the parts for those, um, those things. I don't know if you've heard of BrickLink.
1: I've only seen it now because of your uh, – I think you've done something more recently, the Seasons in Time calendar I was looking at going, oh, actually, I might, uh, I might contemplate
3: that. Yeah, so that's, that. <laughs> that's actually up for crowdfunding on our Wednesday morning. Right. So, so basically,
1: if enough people pre-order that, uh, it goes into production, not from an official Lego point of view. It's essentially just the people that have bricks, and they, they'll send you a whole bunch of bricks. Is that the central concept? Yeah,
3: of it is. It's semi-official because uh, Lego bought out BrickLink a <laughs> couple of years ago. Okay. So I don't think it'll have Lego on the box, but this is the second time they've done this crowdfunding, yeah. cr- crowdsourcing thing. Um, so it's semi-official. And, you know, I know that the Lego design team has built it on their end and give me some feedback that I need to adjust. And the difference between that and, you know, Seinfeld or Ghostbusters is, this is my design. I had to make the instructions piece it all together and do all that stuff as opposed to it being a prototype and hand it off to yeah,
1: exactly. I got a
3: design team at Lego.
1: Um i I've, I neglected to mention the other great thing that I've I've done with several sets, including the Seinfeld set, is add light to them. Have you done that? Have you seen the light market yeah, sets?
3: I've done that. I've done I've even soldered together my own lights for I have made probably three or four years ago a giant like I'm six four. I made a giant bat cave that was taller than me. <laughs> And I got LED strips and lit it all up and had motorized stuff and took it to one of our local shows here in Brisbane. You know,
1: there's another great Aussie um Aussie Aussie creation is the Light My Bricks business, you know, just a yeah. simple simple little pack ordered on the internet. And I've I think I've got five still just sitting there ready to be added to my cars and my different sets. But you know, the Seinfeld sets one, it, it doesn't really add a whole lot to it, but it's it's just so smart that you can have a little spotlight on Jerry and just, you know, the the T V lights in the apartment all work. It's such a great ecosystem, Lego. And obviously, you know, you're a man that can just grab a bunch of Lego and build something with. But, you know, people like me um, and probably, probably plenty of people listening absolutely love what you did with the creation of the, of the Seinfeld kit. And I hope, hope to goodness you come up with many, many more because um, it's just great to see creativity come to light like that. And uh, it's great to know that an Aussie was at the heart of it, mate. So congratulations. Well done and, and really awesome to, to chat to you. Thanks for having me. Trevor Long, taking your calls. If you've got a tech question, go to the website, eftm.com. Chris did that. G'day, Chris.
0: Hello, Trevor. How can I help you? I have got... I have got uh, a stroke and my husband is gone, so we want to make our home into a smart home, <gasps> but our uh, Wi-Fi is five gigabytes, and the Wi-Fi plugs are only 2.4 gigabytes, and they won't connect properly.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the funny thing is, Chris, that most Wi-Fi networks, even though they say they're 5 gigahertz, are actually both. So they're actually dual band. They're 2.4 and 5. But the closer you are to the modem, the more likely you are to connect to the 5 gigahertz. So, my, I mean, I, I could say to you, downgrade your modem, get a different router and, and use just a 2.4 gigahertz router, but then you're kind of missing out on the future of, of Wi-Fi. What I would say is what I've tried with device, I had a robot vacuum ones that I just couldn't get connected. What I did was take it to the other end of the house, further away, as far away from the modem but still within Wi-Fi range, and try and set it up there. And and you'll find that it will likely connect to the two point four gigahertz that way. Okay. All
0: right. And then, now, then uh, I then I I had to group it to because what I wanted to be able to do. As I said, John is fine and I've had a stroke. I want to be able to turn to voice recognition yeah. and group them and say, Alexa, turn on TV. Absolutely. TV
1: oh, it, Chris, this this is made for you. I mean, it's a terrible situation you're in having had a stroke and, and your husband's uh, blind. But the world of technology is here for you. Now, I look, I'm not saying you might be able to do this on your own. You might need some support and help with this. But... Hopefully, there's someone in your life that can help you. But an Alexa or Google will be a, a game changer, I, a, dare I say life changer for you, because oh, we, we, light, we've had, light
0: bulbs. We've had the Google, Google Minis since the generation of Google Minis came out, and I know what they can do. But we've had to go to Alexa third generation so that we can change so that it can connect
1: to the TV and things like that. Totally fine. I I don't mind either one, to be honest. I use Alexa more than I use Google, Um, but they're both as good as each other. But as long as you get a reputable brand of plug and light, the idea that you can go to bed and say to Alexa to turn off all the lights and know with confidence that all your lights are off, um, those things are just absolutely brilliant. But just try that little tip of taking the plug if it's not connecting to your Wi Fi, take it to a further end of the home, away from the modem, but at the kind of the edge of the Wi Fi signal essentially. So that it's still getting Wi Fi, but hopefully it'll get two point four gigahertz. All right, Chris? Thank you, Trevor. Good luck. That's um and that... I, I hope that it helps
0: other people and they can see the, the idea of a smart home, particularly for people with disabilities. Totally. Because uh, that's what we need to uh, have.
1: Absolutely, Chris. Good on you. Fantastic to hear from you. Thanks Thank for getting you. in touch. Thank you. Good on you. And uh, it's it's just, do you know what? We live a privileged life, the majority of us. I don't I don't know what it's like to have had a stroke and not be able to interact with the things that I interact with on a daily basis, to not have my sight. I was talking to a, a long-time, a very dear friend of mine um, uh, about a month ago, and he said to me, I've known him, I don't know, 30 years, 20, It's uh, at least 20, 25 years, right? He said, uh, did you know my brother's blind? And I went, I had no idea. Like, I I'd, to be honest, I didn't even know he had a brother. And, um, and he said, yeah, he kind of lives a reclusive life, but loves his music, loves his vinyls and all this, and he doesn't have any gadgets. And I said, oh, my God, mate, the things that you could do. Like, I know you love your vinyls, but imagine setting up a really good quality speaker system. And teaching someone who's blind to speak and ask for music and just get anything and not have to, you know, <laughs> he made the joke that unfortunately you go for the vinyl collection and the, the vinyls are in the wrong covers because, yeah, putting them back in the wrong place. But the idea of just saying play me this or play me that is just even from the most basic cheap speaker, just learn what it can do. And once you know what it can do and know what you want to wanted to do, then you grow your your ecosystem by better speakers, by more things. Um, yeah, I, I think it's under underrated the impact of smart technology on that those who aren't living the, the 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 advantaged life that many of us are. It's 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 awesome. It really is. So great to hear from you Chris and hopefully you get that sorted. EFTM This is the EFTM Podcast. EFTM Podcast. A lot of headlines around today about electric vehicles. Um, We've had announcements from New South Wales and Victoria over the last year or so, Um, but today the federal government, in what you could best describe as a backflip, um, have in some way pushed towards an electric vehicle future. And uh, there's a lot to unpack here, but I wanted to look at it more from a general perspective of, are we on the right track? Is this the right way to go? And what is the right approach? Because I have strong opinions on this, you probably know, but one person who probably knows more about this than any of us is Gail Broadbent, who's a postgraduate researcher in the field of electric vehicles in the University of New South Wales, UNSW Faculty of Science. And she joins me on the line. G'day, Gail.
2: Hi there. How are you?
1: Very well. This is fascinating. Now, um, let's let's understand where you sit in this place. You've um, You've obviously done a lot of work in this space. You've been a transport policy advisor um, for the New South Wales government. How, how, how does your passion or your interest in electric vehicles come about?
2: Uh, look, I, I was concerned about uh, the future uh, of climate change. So I thought, well, what can I do to help transition us to a better future? And I thought, well cars contribute about 10% of our annual emissions and i thought right okay if we can transition to electric cars that would be 10% of our total emissions that would go away Sick. so mm. i think you know that that was what drove me to um to do the research in this area
1: so i mean i you know you don't know me but i love electric cars i've driven them for Goodness me! It's five or six years now. I've I've been driving and reviewing electric cars. Um, mm-hmm. haven't yet got to the point of owning one, but uh, that's really that'll probably come up in this conversation around price. Uh, I'm currently Gosh. currently driving a Kia Nero, the electric vehicle, and I drove it a thousand kilometres on the weekend to visit my mum in regional New South Wales. And this weekend I'm going to take it to Young, another probably thousand kilometre road trip. Um, mm-hmm. I'm all in, but I'm trying to understand here what is the best approach because there's so many people. Um. I guess, with opinions on government announcements like this, but the federal sure. government has announced uh, a huge investment in essentially charging infrastructure, You know, trying to make sure that companies uh, and, and governments and business are building the infrastructure which is required if we are going to have more cars. Because when I drive to Tamworth, it's all well and good, there's a charger on the way, but if there was double the number of cars, I'd probably have half the chance of getting a spot on the charger. So we've got a lot of work to do on that front. Are, are we on the right track
2: Uh, Look, I think that what this strategy uh, announcement today does is send a message to the community that it's okay to make the transition, that it's acceptable and that they're going to support it, Uh, but I would suggest it's probably not enough support because, um, you know, you have to do a lot of things from a lot of areas to overcome the barriers that people perceive about it, and for someone who's not familiar with them, they probably think there is nowhere to recharge because they don't see them on the roads um, because, you know, the signage isn't there. And so, you know, if they're not even considering it, no one's going to say to them, but there is a website called PlugShare where you can look up and see where all the recharges in Australia are indeed around the world. And it's not that hard, but it's just that people have to even think about it to even want to find out that bit of
1: information from a, from a and, social attitude point of view like what do we what do mm. people perceive i find it fascinating and i i did um a, 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 a i probably probably posted 100 videos on the weekend of my journey up to my mum's. Mm. it certainly felt like it but i was mm. overwhelmed by the number of people who may, may have been following me for years and seen me drive electric cars for a long time but just had so many questions and that's the problem really isn't it we we we, we actually need to educate people on those that transition because it is parking everything you know about about vehicles isn't it because the the concept of filling up is actually out the window when you charge every day but that is that the stumbling block people have they don't understand
2: Um, it no no there are two stumbling blocks or two chief ones no three chief ones i (laughs) should should say so the first one is lack of knowledge people just don't know about this stuff so the more we get out the message that's better because then more people are going to understand what's going on Um, The second one is the perception of uh, lack of infrastructure. So it is there. And I mean, unless you want to drive across the Nullarbor where it might be difficult, I mean, people have done it, but it might be difficult unless you're going to do that. And I'd suggest not many people actually would do that. um, Pretty much you're okay unless you're going to a very remote area that you can recharge and you can get to your destination. Mm -hmm. But you know, you, you were spot on when you said the more cars there are, the more difficult that will become. Now, in Norway, where seventy-five percent of new car sales this year have been electric cars, range anxiety is not a thing over there anymore because there's enough recharges around. What is now happening is that there is queue anxiety. People are going, Oh, I don't want to I I don't want to have to stop. At that place on my way to wherever because I might have to wait. And so that is now replacing it. So they're going to find, and this has been documented in the literature, they're going to find that last 20% of people are going to be more difficult to convince to make the change because they, you know, it's not that they can't recharge on their trips, it's just they don't want to wait. So, you know, there's an ongoing role for government to support the non profitable locations. Now, if the location is profitable, Hmm. private business will make those investments and they'll make the shift. I mean, in Norway they're ripping out petrol stations and replacing them with recharger stations. They make more money out of the coffee and the sandwiches than they they do out of the 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 electricity for the cars so you know that becomes a business model in itself mm. so you know we do have to keep investing in as the the but number the prof- of cars profitable goes
1: up. locations are the problem right because yes. it's like the nbn the government had yes. to build an nbn because no one was ever going to put fast broadband exactly. into my mum's pub in the middle of nowhere in regional new south wales exactly um, telstra was never going to do that because there's there's three connections Within 50 mm. kilometres. So yep. the, the charging infrastructure, obviously, along the Pacific Highway and the Hume Highway, you know, commercial interests will probably take care of that. But when you start looking at the more regional roads, that's where governments, local, state, federal, exactly. uh, motoring groups come in, don't they? But yeah. I guess m- my concern here is that I hear a lot, and I'd love your opinion on this, so I hear a lot that we need governments to subsidise the purchase of electric Acc- cars.
2: Absolutely. So this is the other the other major sticking point. So one is the infrastructure, two is the knowledge, but three, is the price of the vehicle. So people perceive them as being more expensive. Now there's two reasons for that. Half the people never buy a new car, so they see a new car as a luxury item, uh-huh. and totally I get that. Um, you know, if you're only spending ten thousand a year on a or ten thousand not to buy a car, you're not going to be able to afford an electric car right. because For some time. The, the, the population of second-hand electric cars is almost non-existent. Mm. Um, they haven't been around long enough to develop a large stock of second-hand ones, which is where it is much more cost-effective. Yeah. But as I say about the perception, let's say you do afford a new car, but, you know, there might be a 20% difference between the price of the electric car to a similar non-electric one. Mm. And people go, well, I don't want, I, you know, I just can't make that extra jump to yeah. get that. Even though, even though over, you know, over the time you own the vehicle, maybe within four or five years, the cheaper uh, electricity per kilometre is much cheaper than the petrol per kilometre. And so the savings you make on the petrol you will make back what you spend on that extra upfront purchase, but people just don't have that extra upfront yeah, I, that, purchase.
1: I, I find that um, I find it. I'll be honest. I find it. Like, I don't know if the word is correct, but a, a little bit elitist when people say, "Oh, but you're going to save the money long term," but I can't afford the car upfront. Exactly. Okay? I put yeah, my money yeah. down. I was one of the first people on the list for a Tesla Model Three. Put $1,500 yep. down in the hope that I, at the time they came out, I'd be earning enough to, to afford one. They came out yep. more expensive than they thought they were going to be, over yes. $60,000. Yep. Um, still a great price for, for a good car, don't get me wrong. But it, yep. I, I spent $60,000 on a Kia Carnival, which is an eight-seat family car. There's no yep. way I'm getting my wife to agree to the exact same purchase for a small sedan. Um, yep. Just getting that extra bit is, is a real challenge for people. And I think that while there may be ongoing savings – my my concern around this subsidisation of the purchases mm. does it drive down the cost of the cars in time? Because, for example, Kia Nero driving it today, wonderful car, seventy thousand dollars, and mm. I'll be honest with you, the um the equivalent petrol sized car from Kia probably forty maybe 45 mm. so you're mm. talking about i've i've and i've been doing this for five years the the gap between the petrol equivalent mm. and the electric is between 15 and twenty thousand dollars. that's right and and yep. i don't i worry that if the government was subsidizing me as a buyer 15 or 10 grand mm. what's the incentive for car companies to to bring the price down over time
2: it's not um that doesn't incentive to bring the price down. That's not how it works. Basically, what it is, is that the manufacturers make them, and the more cars they make, there's a process called industrial learning, which is a fancy word for saying the more they make, the cheaper it becomes per unit that comes off the the line at the end of the day.
1: Economies of scale, right?
2: Exactly. So, that is where, just by increasing the purchasing of them... Eventually, the price of the batteries come down, eventually the price, because the price difference is due to the battery cost. And so, the more people who are buying electric cars, the more batteries get made. The economies of scale means that the the vehicles become cheaper. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which is a respected um, organisation that works these things out, they have said that price parity will occur 2025, 27, maybe 2030 at the very latest here in Australia because not every country gets these things happening at the same time, but they will reach price parity by that point. And so from that point, you you would call it a tipping point. Yeah.
1: Sorry, so uh, what which, year was that, do, you, do they expect?
2: Uh, Mid-20s, okay. maybe, you know, here in Australia, probably a little bit later, we, yep. we, we reckon around 2030, yep. because we just, you know, there's not the incentives for these manufacturers to bring them here, and I'll get onto that shortly. Sure. But going back to the it's all about incentivizing them through purchasing rather than any other form so that's just a you know yeah. an, a manufacturing and, and, reality and, and, and
1: so so you uh, firmly believe and i guess uh, as a taxpayer i think to myself do, do we mm. get a guarantee from the car company like if if we if we did incentivize the purchase for, mm. for the next 10 years you know, mm. we kind of need it in writing that they're going to make sure that those economies of scale do work out to so that parity number becomes closer to petrol. Okay, well, we, we don't want to end explain up, that. We don't want to end up, do we, paying more yep. for cars just because we, we transition to a different technology?
2: Okay, so I'll explain that to you. So in Europe, they have a mandatory fuel emission standard. And mm. basically what that means is manufacturers are obliged to sell a certain number of electric vehicles to meet that standard yep. because the they've got lower emissions. So and a lot of countries in Europe have now said by 2030, 2035, we're going to ban the sale of fossil fuel vehicles from that date. You will not be able to buy a new one. You could buy a second-hand one, but you won't be able to buy a new one. So that'll be the end of the road for them. So all the manufacturers in Europe are transitioning across their manufacturing lines to electric vehicles, bringing out more models. And so that's where the advantage comes with You know, the the manufacturers, that's what they're going to be making. So if we had such a standard here in Australia, we don't, and we're one of the only two OECD countries that don't have this standard. Without that standard, there is no obligation for the manufacturers to bring them here. They'll just go, oh, well, we'll just dump our fossil fuel vehicles here in Australia because they don't care and there's no price penalty for it. We'll sell all the ones we make in Europe where there is a price penalty. and we'll sell them there. So that that's what will happen. That's the realities of a global market. We don't make cars here. No. So this is we are going to just be suffering whatever the manufacturers decide, that's what we'll get. And so when you say about put it in writing about the price parity, it will happen in Europe Governments have set this mandate, and because they have said, "Well, from 2030 onwards, no more fossil fuel vehicles," that's the end of it for you know for them. And so that's what will happen. The price parity will be happening because they will make the sales big enough that economies of scale for manufacturing that will happen, and the battery price will come down as more and more vehicles get get the batteries. So. That it they won't write it in a guarantee, yeah. but it will just happen as a natural progress of what is going on in Europe. Not what's going on here. Yeah. And it's always you know, the way, isn't
1: it? Europe, especially in the car industry, leads what we do. Which is why it's hmm. it's it's guaranteed we'll go electric, but I guess what you're saying is while ever there's going to be petrol cars built, and there will always be for, for, for a long time because there's uh, uh, third world nations, for example, that are not going electric anytime soon, they're going to dump cars on us, aren't they? And that's what you're saying is we need that emissions that's... target. Why do we need the government to make the target as opposed to the voluntary standard which the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries already has?
2: Okay, because if a standard's not mandatory... They make more profit per vehicle for the fossil fuel ones because of the sunk costs in the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. So the profit per vehicle is higher at the moment. All right. And so if you're a manufacturer and you can make an extra $1,000 per vehicle by sending it to Australia rather than an electric one, well, what are you going to do? It's a no-brainer. That's what yeah. they will do, because the profits are there. And so, whatever. Well, there's no mandatory standard. It's all very well having this voluntary standard that, that the um automotive industry have have you know put out, but there's no obligation to meet anything. Yeah. They'll just do what they like. It's you know, like they can say everything. There? Yeah, there's no penalty. So, whatever. Well, there's no penalty. You know, this is all about carrot and stick. Unless, isn't Unless there's a stick. Well, what? You know, why would they do that? Mm.
1: The carrot's not enough, really, is it? Um, and no. So, so with today's announcement from the federal government, and it's a, fr- frankly a lofty goal. I don't see how they achieve 1.7 million electric vehicles on the road by 2030, given that yeah, that would be, on average, 200,000 cars a year uh, between now and then. And, and we only sell a million. That's that's a big jump from 1% to 20%. And it's obviously got to ramp up. So it, that means that by 2030, it's actually going to be more like 40 or 50%. It's, mm. it's not really um, achievable, is it?
2: Well, it could be. It could be, and it is definitely possible Mm. if the government makes some regulatory changes, as we've discussed, the idea of the mandatory standard, but they also invested in the infrastructure so that people can go on the long trips without fear of running out of charge or having to queue for the charge, either way, or uh, reach remote locations. But there's also very large parts of the large capital cities that were established a long time ago, there are many suburbs that were built before the advent of motorcars. They don't have off-street parking. And so unless you provide them with local charging that they can use day to day, those people are not going to be able to, regardless of what they want to do, they're not going to be able to do it. So we estimate there's about 30% of the vehicles out there people could not change over because they can't access conveniently located and I, and the convenience is the big thing da-
1: daily gonna, basically it's got convenience yeah. isn't just putting one wherever petrol station is that's that's old school thinking it needs to be yes. street based essentially doesn't it yes
2: yeah. yeah and you know there's a company that apparently are, are looking at you know the um substations we have around yes um, well we certainly got them in sydney but those green box things. So apparently Mm -hmm. there's a company that are, you know, starting to work on providing recharges at where those things are. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, not every location of one of those things is going to be able to accommodate an electric vehicle nearby to recharge just because of the formatting of the roads. But, you know, even if you start at that point, that is a starting place. Mm -hmm. In, In London, there's this fantastic system, and I just love this, the energy companies have worked with the local council and what they do is the energy company owns the light pole. So, they've installed the gizmos inside it so that when you roll up at the end of the day, you just charge into the light pole because they've got the fixture so that you can do it. And the charge... The person who owns the car has this special cord with a box on it, and that box sends the information back to the energy company, and they charge you for it.
1: Who pays for it? Perfect.
2: Yeah. And it works really well. So the council, the local council said, okay, we'll designate charging spaces for electric cars so that when you roll up at the end of the day, you plug yourself in, it locks on so people can't steal it, Mm -hmm. and... It charges back to the energy company that you're with anyway for your household electricity. Yeah. So it's a fantastic system. We need more of that. So we just need people to start having a proper plan as to how we achieve that.
1: We're getting there. We are getting yes. there. It's been it's been a solid twelve. 12- 12 months, hasn't it, really? We've had New South Wales. Um, mm. oh no, let's not talk about taxes because that's a whole other world. But, um, you know, oh, we, ha- we have... No, had... let
2: me talk about that. <laughs> let me talk about that. Let me talk about that. Well, let, of... let
1: me tell you my view on it first then, okay? Um, okay. I I have long held the view that it's all well and good to go electric, but how are we going to pay for what is now the fuel mm. excise, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know, something billions and billions of dollars a year and obviously growing in the, in the forward estimates? It's, a, it's, mm. a, it's an amount of money that needs to be paid. I believe we should move immediately to an all-user road user tax. Um, So no more fuel excise, just everyone. So it doesn't feel like an electric vehicle tax. It's just a new way we pay for how we use the roads.
2: How do you see it going forward? Well, that's one way, and I can see in the long term that we're going to have to develop that. Um, But there is another thought here. Just have a think about this. We import 20 billion dollars of refined petroleum products just last year that's what we imported half of that is for cars alone so 10 billion dollars that is more than and for every liter of fuel you're not buying from overseas and the profits go overseas I might tell you and those fuel companies do not pay tax and the ATO says that that money, that $10 million a year could be better spent supporting the transition to electric vehicles. Every dollar you're not sending overseas is staying here in Australia supporting Australian jobs. So that's the other side of the ledger. It's it's all one thing to talk about the fuel excise. I get that.
1: So you're saying don't the, look at it as one line in the budget. Look at it as a an economy overall. Uh,
2: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. It's got to be economy wide. And the other thing that people forget about is the health costs. Billions of dollars and more people die from air pollution from cars, etc., than they do from road accidents. Now we all know the road accident bill, it's huge. And how many, th- you know, how many hundreds of people die every year? The people die from air pollution. Uh, now, people don't talk about it. You don't see it. It's not spoken about, but it's there and it is quantified. So there, are billions of dollars every year go on that. So you know, the ledger has to be looked at as a holistic thing, right across the economy, not just this one fuel excise point that people get hung up about. Yep. You have to look at it from an economy-wide position. So people think of that, and let let's just think about trucks for a minute. Yep. Drivers of trucks get, um the vibrations of the truck are quite severe. And so they get um, problems, you know, back pain problems, blah, 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 from – and there's even this thing called white finger you get from vibration of the truck. People who are truck drivers get these things. And if they move to electric vehicles, they're a lot smoother driving. Those things are reduced phenomenally. So just think of that too.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of benefits that are, are hard to see, hard to quantify, I guess, Um and it's a huge, I mean, it's a massive debate that needs to be had on a, on a grander scale. I tell you what, you've, you've enlightened me in more ways than one. You've probably changed my view on a couple of things. I do still struggle with and will for a long time probably the idea that a, the car industry knows what they need to do but won't do it without being told to. Like it's, it's a very strange thing to me that they know exactly what they need to do but they won't do it until someone punishes them. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're trundling away we're on our way and I think that education I'm probably what I'm realising is I need to stay out of the politics side of it and stick to the education side of it where, you know, helping people understand that, you know what, it's easy to drive. It's easy to do. You can do it without that that headache. Battery anxiety is, is gone for me. It used to be a problem and, and it's just disappeared for me now because we have such a great network and infrastructure. And, you know, um, it's got to grow and we've got to focus on those things. Uh, you, you've got, you know, a decade or more's worth of work ahead of you just in this field. So you've, you've picked a, a, the perfect place to, to have your, your expertise. Um, i Genuinely appreciate your insights, and I'm fascinated by what you're working on. Hopefully, you can keep us enlightened over the, the long road ahead. Pardon the pun.
2: Mm, terrific. All right. Well, thank you very much for your interest.
1: Thank you, Gal. You're listening
0: to the EFTM podcast. EFTM.
1: Thanks for listening. Great to have your company uh, action-packed and lots going on on the show today. G'day, Con. G'day, Trev. Trevi Good, buddy. What can I do for you?
0: Mate. Kids are going into a new school. They're going to need some computers. Um, they used Chromebooks from their old school over the holidays, and the school, sorry, the home school thing. Yep. Um, do I buy them Chromebooks that are cheap and last them for the next two or three years until they make high school, or can I buy, do I buy them a Microsoft-based thing? I'm not sure with the Chromebooks, that's all.
1: What year are they in?
0: Uh, four and five next year.
1: And so they had no problems with the Chromebooks during homeschooling?
0: No. No, they did well.
1: Mate, here's the thing um, – you're going to need to buy them new laptops in high school. It's That's just the way it is. If you're buying them laptops now, they're going to need a new laptop. My daughter's in year five, and she's got a little laptop to hand me down, but I, I don't expect that to last her through year seven. I expect to buy her a new one at the start of year seven. But yeah. a Chromebook, I would normally say, ah, oh, there's so many risks with kids wanting to do this, that, and the other. But if they're familiar with it, then they don't see it as a disadvantage. So, mate, yes, all in, buy Chromebooks okay. today. And then you've kind of got this buffer zone too. When they say, oh, why can't I play Minecraft Java Edition? You say, the the laptop is for doing your schoolwork on. It's not for playing games on. When they get to year seven and they want bloody uh, a Windows or a Mac or computer, then you have that conversation about what else you can do with it. But right now, mate, it's for doing their work. It's for getting on the internet, maybe for watching YouTube, you can do heaps with them, so yeah. i oh, have
0: got every other device as well, so they don't really need a laptop. Oh, mate, device mate to just play with. just
1: get some uh, good, affordable Chromebooks, and then save your money and start saving now because you're going to need to spend some good coin uh, when they get to yeah. high school.
0: I see some <laughs> and, M1 Max coming our way.
1: Well, exactly. And like me, you've got two. Did you say you got one year four, one year five? Did you say?
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: mate, you got you got back to back years. I've had like a four or five year gap between having to buy laptops, but. When when one goes to high school in two years from now, the next year I'm going to have to buy one. So yeah, yeah I'm thinking. Um, and this is this is the thing. I whether it's I'm actually testing some Huawei Matebooks at the moment, Windows computers. I've got to tell you, twelve hundred bucks up to two grand. Um, actually, cool. I think got a three grand one. Great computers at Windows, like up there with the MacBooks. Probably not benchmark against the M1, but. I don't know who's actually using the performance of an M1, but
0: yeah, yeah. fair enough.
1: You, you have Max Sorry. in your future, my friend.
0: <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I think I do, mate. Thanks a lot for the call. Good
1: on you, Con. Thanks for getting good in touch. Cheers, mate. And uh, yeah, if you've got a question like Con, get in touch. Um, always just a rubber stamp on that that buying advice, if you like. Uh, always happy to help. Thank you so much for listening. Great to have your company once again. Um, thank you for getting to the end of the show. <laughs> um, great to be with you and uh, pumping this show out each and every week. It's, it's awesome. It's my favorite day of the week, just chatting to people on the radio, chatting to people here on the podcast. It's kind of like it's my work day that I don't get paid for. It's a weird thing. Um, but it's my favorite day of the week because of all the things I've ever done, uh, being on the radio was my favourite. Talking on the radio, taking talkback calls, uh, without question, one of my favourite things I've gotten to do over many years, and not just the tech stuff. When I was doing weekends on TUN stuff as well, so this is like my little, my little moment of that. And it's it's much more intimate because it's just me and you. When I'm on the phone and there's no producers or you know radio transmitters and all that in the way, it's just me and you. Um, so yes, always fun to do this show and love pumping out each and every week. Thank you for your company. Please, if you've got an iPhone, download the EFTM app so you can get the notifications and the widgets so you know what's happening at EFTM all the time. But until then, we'll be back again next week. Enjoy your gadgets. Talk to you then.